how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. After college, Chris Brumcotta realized he had, quote, no marketable skills whatsoever. He joked that his lack of options actually led him to screenwriting. That helped demystify the process, he said. The next step to uncover this path was when a friend of his got a job on the Equalizer and he could see how scripts were formatted and laid out. He first landed some writing jobs on Beverly Hills 90210 and then The X-Files. These days, he's best known for his work on Hannibal, Narcos, Narcos Mexico, Godfather of Harlem, and he's even got a credit on the upcoming Sherlock Holmes 3. In this interview, Brancato talks about screenwriting as a mystical career, candy-colored log lines, how to think about latitude storytelling, how some writers' room can actually feel limiting, and how to create a, quote, pitch tsunami for executives. First of all, when I got out of college, I realized that I had, um, I realized that I had um, no marketable skills whatsoever. So it was a little bit of lack in terms of lack of options. I often tell people, had I been good at at, at more things, I never would have been a screenwriter. But um, my mother was um, a novelist. She wrote young young adult novels. So I was aware that one could write and get paid for it. And so that, that, that sort of helped to demystify the process a little bit. Uh, and then, um, and, and, but, but I just thought I would be a writer of some sort. I like to write papers in school as opposed to taking tests or, or God forbid doing math. <clears throat> um, and so uh, a friend of mine, when I came out of college was got a small role on a show called The Equalizer. And he showed me the script and I thought, ah, okay, I just figured out what I want to do. So it was a kind of a combination of lack of knowledge about the business, uh, the, 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 the vague reflected glamour of, of, of television and movies. And then also a sense that, that I did want to try to write. Um, 
And then there was also the fact that it was it was a job. You know, I, I think my my initial instinct was less about artistry and trying to say something than it was, oh, this is a job where you can actually make a living. And uh, and, and in some ways, that mercenary outlook was was helpful. The the desire for artistry and and excellence of craft came a little bit later. Mm. I certainly made a lot of mistakes at the beginning. Did you see a difference in maybe um, screenwriting colleagues back then, those who have more of a roundabout way as opposed to today, where maybe it's more people go through school to learn their way in? Do you see a difference of maybe the life experience? Well, for sure, the going to film school in those days was seemed less of a, um, a you know, a necessity. Um, and most friends of mine actually in that in and at that time this was the 80s you know wanted wanted to be actors uh so i was one of the very few people i knew at the time who wanted to try to write for film and television it was much more of a of a mystical career um i'm not even sure creative screenwriting was was published at the time probably not uh, so that I remember reading in Time magazine about these two writers in Hollywood, Cash and Epps, who wrote Top Gun, and, and about how they were the highest paid screenwriters in Hollywood, even though they hadn't yet had any movies made. So this was right in advance of, of Top Gun. And that seemed strange to me, how you could... Uh, how you could how you could get so well paid for 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 not having had anything made so so again it was a, it was seemed mystical it seemed very far off it seemed impossible to crack into and ultimately that's what led me to move from New York to Los Angeles to try to you know I, I did come to believe that William Goldman's statement that you should be in Los Angeles at least for the beginning of your career was valid. I'm not so sure it is valid anymore, but it was certainly valid back then. And you've really seen, especially the television world, change a lot over time. You, you, one of your first jobs was The X-Files, which was at maybe the peak of that within YPD Blue and some of those shows. How have things changed or are you just kind of been engulfed in it that it all just seems naturally progressive to you? Well, it's been a very hugely interesting and beneficial shift in, 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 um, in the uh, early 90s when I started to crack in, you know, you had basically four broadcast networks, CBS, NBC, Fox, and CBS. And the main preponderance of the shows were kind of big tent shows, perhaps a little bit silly. You certainly couldn't do you didn't have the latitude to do what we do now in terms of storytelling. Uh, the goal was to do 22 episodes a year. And quite honestly, outside of shows like the X-Files, a few that cracked through uh, and, and were enormously popular, but also, you know, pretty darn well written. Um, aside from those, TV was kind of looked at you, you know, every we all wanted to be feature writers. We all wanted to write movies. The, the idea of writing for television was a little bit of second class citizenship. And um, and and again, because my perspective at that time was, hey, I need a job. I need to make a living. I had no um, snobbery about doing television. I was trying to write movies as well. Um, but but 
television was fine with me. And, um, and so I kind of cut my teeth writing those network shows, some decent, some truly horrible. Um, and, and then what happens though, was this very welcome shift over the decades to first the advent of cable television and the cable series like FX, uh, Shield. I, I wrote a pilot that competed against the Shield that first year. Uh, and, and all of a sudden we were able to do shows that were a little darker, had a little more edge, a little more character-based, less concerned with nailing 22 episodes a year. Uh, and then of course we moved into a whole new territory with the streaming services where uh, where, where truly excellence is, is the watchword. And, and, and I've seen with some, some amusement, you know, droves of feature people come into television because that's sort of where a lot of the best writing gets done these days. And, and it turns out now movies, the sort of interesting movies that you were able to write in the 90s and the aughts um, are harder to sell, hard, harder to get made. So, so television is where you can tackle these really interesting subjects and movies seem to me to be a little bit more about a blockbuster mentality. When you were kind of trying to enter both fields, uh, film and television, did you find you had to kind of have a mental shift between kind of writing in solitude for films versus the writer's room where you're kind of more pitching and talking? Do you see that as two different things or is it all the same to you? Well, it's a very good question. I craved after, after, you know, after, after writing a feature where you're alone and have, you know, have to prevail upon your friends for feedback, the idea of being in a writing room and discussing things with a group of other talented people was, was, was definitely something positive, you know, and at the same time, sometimes the, uh, sometimes a writer's room, I find, gets you not as far as you might think you would get. Sometimes it, it, I've certainly been in writers, writers rooms where, where for whatever reason, we don't get as much done as if you were just sitting at home kind of doing it yourself. Mm. Um, it's a mixed bag and it depends on the show. There's nothing better than being with a group of people, all of whom have the, the goal of doing some great creative work and having the laughs and having the, you know, the creative, um, synergy between people. But, uh, you know, I'm also quite aware that writing a feature is very different than writing a television show. I'm working on a feature right now where it's laborious. Like I, I can barely get a page done in a full day. Whereas, you know, if I was writing the same type of thing for television, it's just almost by necessity, you, you're a little more spare you, you, you breeze over the surface a little bit faster, partially because that's the medium. So I think that for um, writers, you, you have to be aware that there's, you know, writing a novel is one thing and has a certain set of rules and, and tips and techniques. Writing a feature is another. Writing television is yet another. They're all different mediums. You see that... Um dramatic television and movies are merging a little more with the way they're written. I mean, most, most TV shows, especially Narcos and Godfather of Harlem feel like movies. A lot of TV shows do today. Do you see more of a merge in the, at least maybe your writing style or the way you do you approach these projects? 
Well, it's funny. I it, certainly we have a feature influence in television because a lot of feature writers migrated to television because we're able to tackle subject matter, as I said, that was used to be kind of the province of mid to low budget features. There, there are of course still features like that, Nomadland being an example, but, 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 but um, you know, the ability of television to tackle uh, darker, more niche subject matter, I think allows for, a, a feeling that there's a, a movie quality to the television we see today's today. And at the same time, um, I have to say that, you know, with Narcos, uh, a lot of the things that, um, that were going through my head in the creation of that first season were, were television concepts. So for example, I knew, you know, te a television episode. Well, I, I had people, the, the director, Jose P Padilla said to me, you know, we're making a 10 hour movie. And I said, well, to be honest with you, we're not because nobody goes to see 10 hour movies. Nobody would want to see a 10 hour movie. We're actually making 10 discrete hours of television that add up to uh, hopefully something larger than the individual parts. So when I sat down to start to contemplate the first season of Narcos, what I looked for was the thing I always look for in the development of the television episode, which is this, I call it the candy colored log line. It's something you can say about the show in one sentence that makes it feel as though it just pops a little bit. So for example, with Narcos, I remember it almost as though it was yesterday. The first episode is origin story. How does Escobar become a Coke dealer and how does uh, Murphy become a DEA guy in Colombia? The second episode was the formation of the Medellin cartel through the kidnapping of Marta Ochoa. The third episode was Escobar runs for Congress. The fourth was the attack on the Palace of Justice. In other words, I had a big tentpole idea behind each of the 10 episodes. And then of course, that forms a spine, the story you're telling, but you can hang all kinds of ornamentation off the, off the tree, so to speak. So you can be talking about and exploring a lot of other themes, uh, but, but I do like the idea of a discrete one hour that once we finished watching the hour, it has a uh, inciting incident, it has rising action, it builds to, uh, uh, a vaulting into a climax and then some sort of resolution. I, I do think that's necessary to make uh, television uh, work on a, in a one hour form. And at the same time, those same principles are required in a two hour movie. You have mm -hmm. to have something that sets things off. You have a much longer period of development through the middle of the movie, the dreaded second act. And then of course you have to go to a climax and resolution. So those things are the same, but, but I think about it in terms of, of uh, making sure we get those things in each individual episode of TV. Hmm. When do those conversations take place over the course of, of writing a season? So let's say, for example, and correct me if I'm wrong here, let's say with Godfather of Harlem, you say, well, we, we want to touch on race issues. We want to touch on religion. We want to touch on business, you know, do you kind of spread those tent poles first every time and then move the characters through them? Or when do the characters maybe take over? Like, how do you have some of those conversations when plotting a whole season of something? Well, it's, it's a very interesting question. It's, it's, um, I guess the best way to answer it is 
that thinking about the second season of Godfather of Harlem, there were a couple of things that really factored heavily into the creation. The first was we had done a first year where we set up that Forrest Whitaker's character, Bumpy Johnson, has come out of Alcatraz to and returned to a Harlem that he barely recognizes because the Italians have taken over the territory that he used to control. And so the first season is really us getting to know the characters both personally and professionally, meaning the, the gangster side of it. And I wanted to bring Bumpy around through the 10 episodes to, you know, to, to have effectively, you know, re reclaimed at least a part of Harlem against the Genovese crime family led by Chinjiganti. So that sort of set the plate. In the second year of the show, what happened in between seasons was the George Floyd murder. And so all of a sudden we were aware that the show, while it dealt with issues of racism, race, uh, uh, um, in the first season, it, it, it dealt with contemporary issues. Uh, people recognized that we were talking about things that, that are going on today through this prism of the past. But in the second season, it became all the more of a privilege and also a responsibility for us to try to really head on tackle police brutality, voter suppression, uh, 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 white supremacy, um, uh, and, and black supremacy too. Um, we we kind of try to touch on everything and, and use the show as a forum to suggest how in some ways things have changed a lot and in other ways things haven't changed much at all. But in terms of the creation of the season, this season, I knew we needed to add an additional element. It starts, Brock, with, with large scale concepts like 3,000 foot above the season concept. So first, first it was like, hey, this battle between Bumpy and the Italians is gonna get tiresome and repetitive. So let's add what I call the third rail. You know, you have the two antagonists, Bumpy and Shin, let's add a third rail. Okay, let's add the French connection. I always liked that movie. That's what was going on at the time. The Marseille connection was pouring dope into New York. And I thought, Let's make a seasonal arc that has to do with Bumpy trying to control the French connection as a means of taking back Harlem. So that was okay. We like that idea. Um, let's let's think of what else we want to have happen. Um, well, we've had Chin and Bumpy squabbling at one another quite a bit in the first season. They're obviously enemies. What if we took a different perspective on their relationship in year two? I don't want to give spoilers here because we're just airing right now. But basically, what if we look at their relationship and do some things to their relationship that'll make us all as viewers think and will also surprise viewers and, and, and avoid the kind of repetition of I hate you, you hate me, I hate you, you hate me. So that became an idea that got actuated in the show. Then, of course, you have Malcolm. We knew that Malcolm in 1964 was not readmitted to the Nation of Islam, which he had been suspended from at the end of the first year. So we knew we were going to have a path to create with Malcolm that included his ultimate expulsion from the Nation of Islam, his court battle to keep his house and other um, 
things that were part of his story during that time. And then there was one or two things about his story that happened in that time frame that we thought, you know what, we're not going to have enough real estate to cover those really as much as we'd like. So let's punt, for instance, his trip to Mecca and his trip to Saudi Arabia and Africa. Let's punt that into the next season, the third season, knock on wood, we get a third season, but um, you, you know, let's, let's push that forward. Godfather of Harlem is historical fiction so that we do have the latitude to, you know, mess around a little bit with, with timelines. Um, and so, and then simultaneous to those kind of bird's eye view conceptual ideas for the season, we were looking at those candy colored log lines that I told you about the, 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 the idea for an episode that would be the central idea. So for example, in episode one of season two, we just wanted to establish the French connection. So we open the season with a wild car chase. That's our version of the incredible car chase that's in the French Connection. And, you know, episode two, well, Cassius Clay was fighting Sonny Liston at that time. So the notion of Malcolm X's friendship with Cassius Clay and his friendship with Bumpy became the tentpole for episode two. So what you're doing is you're working from a bunch of different angles. You're also asking yourself, where do we want Bumpy Johnson to move over the course of the year? So in season one, very few people outside of Malcolm and the pilot, very few people challenge him about the fact that he's a heroin dealer. And, and that was that was a that was a decision. You know, we OK, he's going to get challenged about it a little. Well, in season two. We want him to get challenged a little bit more because our show does not condone heroin dealing as 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 the best means of economic advancement. And and so and at the same time, he was a gangster and his criminality was part of a lack of economic opportunity, uh, or at least that's one of the causes of his criminality. We often look at the whole six episodes, six season a sweep of the show, the planned six season sweep of the show to be the education of Bumpy Johnson. We're moving him slowly but surely through a series of experiences and events that will ultimately yield a Bumpy Johnson in the final episode of the sixth year, who is different than the first Bumpy, the Bumpy Johnson we met in episode one. But you have to move the characters very incrementally. So I guess to sum up what I'm saying is, Bird's eye view about sexy concepts like French connection or partnership with Chin or Malcolm's expulsion uh, or the, 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 the women's stories, the secrets that are coming out about Bumpy's daughter, Margaret, who's actually his granddaughter. Um, you know, those things are the top down concepts. Then there's the innards of the show. What's the specific log line for the particular episodes that we're going to organize our storytelling around? And then there's character movement. How do we want to portray these characters over the course of a season? How, when do we want Malcolm to lose his cool? You know, wait, 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 at what point is he desperate? And we start to get a general sense of that. And then, of course, you know, once you have a a kind of game plan. I always believe that writers should be able to express the ideas for their concepts very, very simply. In other words, if, you've, if you're developing a TV series, uh, a season of television, you want to be able to describe 
what the main thrust of the show is, what the movement of your characters through the season is. And you've got to be able to do it conversationally. You've got to be able to say to somebody, okay, so for instance, I would say to you in season one, Bumpy Johnson comes out of Alcatraz. He discovers that the, the, the territory he controlled is no longer his. He enters into a pitched battle with an Italian crime family to try to achieve supremacy. He wins some, he loses some, and he comes out the other end of the first season having reestablished a friendship with a man who will become very, very important to his emotional and spiritual growth, Malcolm X. And what we've also observed in the first season is the strange collision between organized crime and the civil rights movement. In fact, when Paul Eckstein and I were developing the series, that was what we felt made the series different than a million other gangster shows you've seen, because they're all the same, you know, to some degree, you know, crime shows can be very similar to one another because it's about taking over territory, defeating your enemies, stabbing people in the back, making money, you know, women, all that stuff. And, and, and so we, we, when we were, aware of the relationship that Bumpy had in real life with Malcolm X, their friendship, we saw an angle on the show to put two things together in a series that you just hadn't seen before. And you know what? It turned out we were right because no executive we ever pitched this to had ever heard, hey, man, we want to do a show about the collision of organized crime and the civil rights movement in 1960s Harlem. And I would say to the writers out there, in today's modern world of television, it looks as though there are a million platforms, and I guess there are. It looks like there are a million shows, and I guess there are. But the fact is, it is so hard to sell one of them and actually get it on the air. Everybody's looking over their shoulder at what the next guy is doing. Nobody wants to make a colossal multi-million dollar mistake ordering some show that's a bomb. You know, everybody needs to be convinced why the show is going to work. And also, everybody has heard everything. The executives I deal with now, I've been dealing with for like 20 or 30 years. They're now really high up the food chain if they've still survived. But still, they, they've heard every idea every version of it. There's no idea they haven't heard. And also I hear a lot of ideas from writers coming to me and saying, Hey man, Boston cops in the fifties were super cool. And you know, they, they tried to stop the Boston strangler and I'll say, Hey, you know, that is a cool story, but why should a company make a show that's set in the past at an additional cost of about $10 million? Why should they do that? you know, as opposed to doing a contemporary show. And why should they do it at all unless you have something to say through the show or you've come up with some angle on it that even though they've been in this business 20, 30 years and they've heard every pitch under the sun, they hear it now and they go, wow, this just feels different. It feels familiar. Godfather of Harlem is a gangster show. Narcos was a gangster show. It's the DEA versus the Narcos. This is Bumpy Johnson versus Chin Gigante. Nothing, nothing particularly new there unless you dress it up, unless you turn it on its ear a little bit and make it feel like some, Narcos. We had the luck of, 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 of a couple of things. Uh, Netflix wanted to open their market in Brazil and in Latin America. 
So when I said to them, hey, I'd like the Narcos to speak in Spanish, they were like, okay. And I was sitting there at the table. I'll never forget it, talking to Cindy Holland, who was running the creative. And I, I thought, oh, my God, she just told me I can do a part of it in Spanish. And, and, and that's going to require subtitles. And you know, I thought and I said, well, you know, Cindy, that could mean that the show's 70 percent in English and 30 percent in Spanish. And she said, or 40 or 50. <laughs> and I was like, where the hell am I? Wait, wait, because no um, traditional network would ever allow you to even do one subtitle. And so I thought, wow, this is just incredible. Look at this freedom they're giving us. I, again, it probably turned out that the reason she said that was they were trying to open the service in Latin America and they didn't care very much about American viewers at the time. But what it ended up doing was allowing us to have a certain level of verisimilitude when it came to people like Escobar and his cronies who never spoke a word of English. And people didn't mind reading the subtitles. And then another thing we did was, and this is the production company, Gaumont's Brilliance. They were like, we're going to shoot it all in Colombia. And I thought, oh, what? well, that's weird. We never make shows in America that are set in foreign countries because the common wisdom is nobody watches a show that's not set in America. You know, Americans are xenophobic about that. And it's certainly that's true in network television. They would never let you shoot a show in London or what have you in the old days. But here now we're shooting in this country where you've got this, you know, insane tableau uh, 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 and, and, uh, and so that when you watch the show, you feel like you're really being transported to another place. So my, my point is to the writers out there, it's pitch something that you've turned on its ear a little bit. Assume that no matter how cool the idea seems to you, they have heard it some version of it. I remember saying to an NBC executive, I go, hey man, what's the toughest part of your job? And he goes, well, you know what? These writers will come in and they'll do a great pitch and it's a show about warlocks and they'll be so excited. And then what they don't know is it's the third warlock pitch I've heard this season because the ideas almost come in droves like that. Like the weird thing is the zeitgeist creates writers thinking about ideas. So for some reason, one year, everybody's coming in pitching warlock shows and, and, you know, and then he's like, and I'm, you know, and I, and I have to listen to the whole pitch, even though I've decided, I don't think warlocks is right for our network. And, you know, and these poor writers have gone to all the trouble um, to do that. Is there anything, so it sounds like the, you know, like you said, the idea is, is everything. Is there anything else about, if, if you were starting today and had, you know, less of a repertoire behind you, but you had a decent idea, what's your mental state going into a pitch? Are you just fully engulfed in the idea, excited? Like, wh what do you, how do you consider that? What, what sort of works if the idea is good? Well, a couple of tips and techniques that I use are this. I, I never have a pitch that's longer than seven pages typed up on my, um, um, you know, in, a, in, a, in my um, screenwriting program. Anything more than seven pages takes you over about 18 minutes. And you don't want to go over 18 minutes because it starts to get boring. 
So whatever the hell you're going to say, say it in 18 minutes or less. Don't make it too short or you won't give them enough information, but God forbid, don't make it too long. And then have that. You don't have to be off book. You don't have to be coming in, doing a song and dance like you don't even glance down at your page. But what I generally do is I take that seven page pitch and I yellow mark certain key phrases just to remind myself so I can glance down at it. I practice it a bunch before I go into the room with executives. I practice it with my assistant. I practice it with my friends. I, I, I say it out loud into the mirror just because I want to be really comfortable and conversational. Also, a pitch is this. Nobody wants to hear, and I'm sure your writers who uh, read the magazine know this, but like nobody wants to hear a laundry list of characters. Well, there's Sam Landry, and he's six foot two, and, da, 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 da. and now there's Mimi Landry, his wife, and her. Nobody wants to hear a laundry list. They want to meet characters in action. So what I'll do is I present characters by, by, by pitching scenes. Those scenes might not exist in the pilot. They may never exist in the show, but I want to make people understand these characters through action, not just telling you their vital stats. Also, I noticed something when you pitch executives. The fact is this, <clears throat> within the first two or three minutes, they're either leaning forward in their seat or they're leaning back. You need to have them leaning forward. And so the first minute or two of the pitch, I try to make it a cinematic experience. In fact, there were executives who used to joke. They were like, they'd go, Chris pitches like this. You know, we come around the corner into a dark alley and there's a body lying there. It's dead body. It's been knifed open. And as we move closer to the body, we realize it's stuffed with cash. You know, they always used to judge, like I, I'd say something that makes you go like, oh, my God. Now, that's obviously a horrible example. But um, um, oh, uh, uh, I'll give you another one. It was sort of like um, um, John Henderson works for military defense contractor and uh, in D.C. He's got a wife and two lovely kids. Um, the weird thing is this. Someone's stealing an hour a day from him. For, 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 for reasons we don't know, he, he, he's cognizant 23 hours, but that 24th hour, it's gone from his memory. He thinks he's doing regular stuff, but he's not. Someone has stole an hour a day from him and the series about him trying to find out who's doing that and why. Because what we're going to come to learn is John Henderson is chasing the most dangerous terrorist in the world himself. I sold that in two seconds, you know, and by the way, that's a weird homeland type concept. My idea involves a, a homegrown terrorist who was brainwashed into it in a in a more sci fi way than the very clever homeland way where he was brainwashed into it by getting you know captured in, in the Middle East. But in any case, that's what you need them to just go. Wow. Oh, my. What? You know, and, and then they're leaning forward the whole rest of the time. And obviously the rest of your pitch has to be good, too. The other thing from a business perspective, and this is what's hard if you're not in the business, living in it, a series of shows you've worked on, a track record. This is the difficult part. The difficult part is, like I said, shows are really hard to sell. It's, it's, it, it is the idea, but it's not just the idea. It's who's show running it. What's the production company involved? What's your track record? How many hits have you had, but et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the things you have to try to do is create a tsunami. I, I, I want the executives feeling like 
hey, Chris is going to walk out of this room and he's leaving Amazon and he's heading right over to Apple and he's laying that same killer pitch on them. And you know what? They're going to buy it. So we better be in touch with his agent before he even gets over to that next place. Now, by the way, that rarely, if ever happens, but basically that's what you're going for. You need them terrified to say no, because otherwise they will say no. And one way you do that is with, you know, by the way, Forrest Whitaker, I brought him into the room in Godfather of Harlem. I had written the script in advance and, and, and to get him to agree to play it. And then I'm in the room with him. And I knew even then that that was no guarantee that Forrest actually didn't even mean all that much. He's an older guy. Yeah, we all love him. He's got a he's a phenomenal actor. But you know what? In the cutthroat world of television, he doesn't mean as much as some 30-year-old stud muffin. I, I don't even know their names. But like, you know, so, so it, it, it was sort of like, and you know what? That barely got us over the finish line. We didn't sell Godfather of Harlem to but one place, Epics. Now Epics is super happy. And the places who missed it, I think aren't happy, but the fact is this, it just didn't mean all that much at the time. And that was my attempt to create a tsunami with that project, meaning the attachment of a director, the attachment of, a, of an actor, but sometimes networks don't wanna to be told who the actor should be. They wanna help you choose the actor themselves. So you have to be careful about that. Sometimes it's the auspices of a really strong producer who has a track record of hits. You know, you have to strategize to do everything you can to get to, to, to get them terrified to say no. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.